This is episode number 64 with human behavior expert, Chase Hughes. Welcome to Growth Mindset University. My name is Jordan Paris, 21-year-old author and host of this show. And with this show, you and I will embark on a journey to learn the things that we should have learned in school but did not, so that we may take control of our lives while fulfilling our vision of success. Each episode will feature a brand new lesson, and now it's time for today's lesson. So put your thinking cap on, because school is now in session. Okay, this is surreal because I just interviewed the author of one of my favorite books, a book on human behavior written by Chase Hughes. It is called The Ellipsis Manual, Analysis and Engineering of Human Behavior. And if you are a living, breathing human being, you must read this book if you wish to be an effective communicator and if you wish to become fluent in body language, in reading body language, you can really get inside of people's heads if you read this book. It is amazing, unlike anything I've ever read before. The first 70 pages alone were breaking down every single body language gesture, analyzing it and describing what all of it means, and it was incredibly helpful. Things that now when I am out and I see people doing, I know what they're thinking a lot of the time because I can read these gestures and there's a whole system. He went so far as to even create the behavioral table of elements, much like the periodic table of elements, but with body language gestures and vocal tonalities. It's incredible the amount of work that this man, Chase Hughes, has put in. So I interviewed Chase today, and it's really powerful. Chase and I talk about a ton today. He tells us why, when we're better dressed, we're more likely to be taken seriously and get help in times of need. He talks about why authority is critically important, so much more important than any persuasion technique ever conceived. We talk about concepts like the bystander effect, attentional shift fatigue. We talk about how you can identify the hidden needs of the human being that you are talking to in every interaction. This is critically important if you wish to tailor your communication to fit this person's needs and have a successful communication and dialogue and relationship with the other person. We talk about the power of a concept called embedded commands, how you can sort of get people to do what you want to do by embedding commands into sentences covertly. And along those same lines, getting people to do what we want using elaborate double binding questions and statements. We also talk about social scenarios where it would be beneficial to commit deliberate social errors to make it appear like you're a little bit out of sorts. Why that's beneficial. Guys, I cannot stress this enough. Get this book, The Ellipsis Manual, Analysis and Engineering of Human Behavior on Amazon by Chase Hughes. It's a number one bestseller. Get this book. It has changed my life. It has changed my interactions and it has changed my relationships forever. Chase Hughes has changed my life and You're going to get a taste of that in this interview. But again, get that book. Get the Ellipsis Manual on Amazon. Get it now. By the way, there are a ton of show notes and mentions for this episode at jordanparis.com 
health.com/ep64. And now without further ado, let me introduce to you the human behavior expert, the one and only Chase Hughes. All right, Chase Hughes, I have been waiting for this all month with a very warm heart and open arms. I welcome you to the show because I've never been this excited before, man. I have been for the past month living and breathing human behavior and Chase Hughes between your book, The Ellipsis Manual, which is, by the way, one of the best books that I've ever read. It's literally going up on my favorite shelf that you see right over here next to Tony Robbins, Awaken the Giant Within, Way of the Peaceful Warrior. I don't know. I, I think I may have told you that already. And the Behavioral Table of Elements, studying that, that I have right here, printed out and laminated and listening to you in my ears on different podcasts. And so this is really cool for me and I'm super excited and welcome to the show, my friend. Wow, thanks Jordan. I'm, I'm uh, humbled that uh, this has been important for you, man. And I'm even more proud to be up there with uh, Tony Robbins. Definitely, man, definitely. So I gotta ask you then, why did you write the Ellipsis Manual? Because there is no other book out there like the ellipsis manual subtitle the analysis and engineering of human behavior why did you write it i spent a really long time in the u.s military and a lot of that time was me trying to find the wall or the limit of where human influence ends the capability of one person to influence another i wanted to figure out where the end was where does it where does it stop i went through 55 some odd seminars I went through audiobooks, I went through paperback books, and everything that I could possibly get my hands on for influence and persuasion. And it seemed to be like every time, we've all been there, like we, we get really excited for a book, and we start flipping through it, and there's only maybe like two paragraphs worth of actionable stuff in the entire book, and it's not really that good. It's, it doesn't teach you step by step. It doesn't give you an example. So uh, we invented a lot of the methods that are in the book, and I wrote the book that I had been looking for. So I wrote that book for me, first of all. But second, I wrote it because, one, it didn't exist. And two, I think there was a huge gap in the market. And a lot of people have a great sales pitch, and they kind of under-deliver on the product. They have a sales pitch that says, oh, mind control anybody or do X, Y, and Z. And then you read the book, and it says, well, make more eye contact and shake the hand more firmly, and that'll, that'll get the job done. That's just, I was, I was upset, you know, spending so much money on stuff I could just find on the internet. Definitely. That makes a lot of sense. So it goes back to that guaranteed audience of one. You know, I say that with podcasting all the time, like you, if you're not going to enjoy it and if you don't have that guaranteed audience of one, then don't do it. And it sounds right. like, like to your point, you wrote that book as sort of a reference. You wrote it for yourself. So why ellipsis? Where does that come from? Well, uh, first I thought it was, I thought it sounded cool. And Second, the ellipsis or the three dots that you see in, in uh, written word means that something is left out or omitted. It, it indicates missing language. So I thought that was a really good name for the company because it indicates something we're not seeing. And, it, and I wanted to be the guy that shows everyone what they aren't seeing every day. And so this book is incredibly comprehensive, of course. It delivers on every promise 
that that you had made. And I mean, the first 70 pages alone, I knew this was going to be one of my favorite books because it was going in depth, analyzing what all of these body language gestures mean. I think like, uh, you know, over well over a hundred different gestures and tonalities, what they all mean and putting this whole system together where you can sort of get into people's minds. So I'm wondering where this interest of yours is coming from. It, uh, the, the origin story, is that what you're looking for? I am looking for that, yeah. So I, was, I joined the Navy, uh, United States Navy, when I was 17 years old. And I was stationed in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. And I, was, I wound up being out there for a long time little over 12 years. And when I was 19, I was pretty typical, I think, in that I thought I had everything figured out. You know, someone tried to give me advice, be like, yeah, yeah, bro, thanks. Cool story. And I'd, I'd move on. You know, I was, I was not humble uh, at all. And finally, one time, I, someone, uh, a girl, I was trying to get to go home with me, said no. And I went home that night and I was, I couldn't figure it out. So I searched on the internet, how to tell when girls like you and printed out this massive stack of articles and took them with me and studied them for months. And I noticed that the more I studied human behavior, the more I was able to see fear and insecurity in every human being to the point where it was just, it's the, it's the most universal thing is to see insecurities, fear and suffering. And that being more universal than happiness or arrogance or pride uh, struck me pretty hard and it became addicting because it humanized everyone the people who would have otherwise been threatening socially or would have been somebody I would not have approached or, or even spoken to were all of a sudden real, just real humans. And I think it, it, that's when it became addicting is that it kind of cured my social anxiety to an extent. Mm. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. So Chase, I would imagine that an incredible amount of time went into learning all of these skills and body language gestures and behavior engineering tools. So I'm curious as to how you learned it and how you ingrained it into your mind. I'd imagine with that part, the second part of this ingrained into your mind, that you used, took consistent action and used habits to your advantage because building a lifestyle is cumulative. Everything you do and say counts. It moves you closer to your goal and where you want to go. So, Yeah, absolutely, man. And I've never really done a lot of research on habits, but I've figured out some ways that, that really work for me. And I know that a lot of people, when they see somebody that goes to the gym all the time, they think, oh, that guy's got a lot of discipline. That's not discipline. They only use enough discipline to get a habit formed, and then it's just a habit. So... A lot of times, just like eating, like we never have to set a reminder on my phone, eat food. Our body does that automatically because it's a habit, because it's something that it's, it's starting to crave. It's something it's needing as part of a routine. And when you're deficient in any kind of habit, whether it's smoking cigarettes, 
or going to the gym or eating healthy and it's a habit, your body starts telling you to do it automatically. You don't need a reminder. You don't need discipline. If there's an automatic reminder there. So you, a lot of people assume that, oh, I need more discipline. You actually don't need that much. You just need enough discipline to get the habit set up and get it started, get it rolling. And a lot of it comes down to small micro habits. So like there was, there was a research that was done. I'm embarrassed I can't remember the guy's name. There's a Stanford researcher. He had 100 students, and he told half of them to go home and floss one tooth that evening. So the students, half of the students would floss one tooth. That was their direction. Half of the students were told to floss their teeth every single night. And it turns out the students that were given a smaller task to start out with flossed one tooth and inevitably wound up flossing more teeth than the people who were told to floss their teeth every night. So it's just this tiny micro habits. And when we talk about going to the gym, just to, to keep hammering on that example, if you set a smaller goal, like getting up and getting in your car, that's it. That's all you have to do. You get out of bed, you go sit in your car for a second. And if you feel kind of stupid if you don't at least drive to the gym. And then once you get to the gym, you feel stupid if you don't at least go in there and do some push-ups or something. And then you get that habit, just tiny, tiny goals is where you have to start. And nowadays, I have a five by seven note card that I just, you know, I've printed out at uh, Office Depot or FedEx right here. And they print it out on a note card. On the left side is all the daily habits I'm tracking, like if I'm eating right, how much I weigh, whether or not I watch Netflix, which is like a down check. So all of these little habits. And then we have like the authority behavior traits from the book. And those are confidence, discipline, leadership, gratitude, and enjoyment. And I kind of rate myself one ten on all those. And right beside that, and this is a tiny little note card. It's just a, a little plan for the day, the top priorities of the day. And all the way on the right side is a 6 a.m. to 9 p.m., just a quick timeline so I can jot down really important stuff. And yes, it's in Google Calendar. Yes, it's on my phone. But jotting it down, putting it into your brain, and that's like starting the day with something like that makes a tremendous difference, especially when you have a big endeavor. You're an entrepreneur or you're trying to become more successful or scale your business somehow. You've got to have these habits down. And if you don't, someone else is going to be the one to call you out or the market will be the one to call you out. I definitely agree. I use similar practices in my life as far as habits and scheduling things. When I was writing my book, I scheduled every single day, two to 8 PM blocked off for writing the book. And of course I started before then, but from two to 8 PM, that was a non-negotiable. I had to be writing the book. So you talk a lot about authority chase. Why is authority important and how do you generate authority this is something that i discovered over the course of doing all this research and there've been i did not discover the impact of authority i didn't there's one of the biggest guys in the field his name is dr stanley milgram and he was a yale psychologist and did all kinds of sociological experiments but his, his most famous one was called the milgram experiment or a study on human obedience to authority. And they studied whether or not a person would shock another human being 
just because they were told to do so. And there's a lot of details. Uh, I can dig in there if you want to, but in the process of the experiment, somebody walks in, they volunteer for this experiment, they walk into a room, and it's, uh, let's say, you're Jordan, you're the, you're the volunteer. It's you and someone else, you walk into a room, and this guy in a lab coat makes you guys draw straws. There's two straws, one says learner, and one says teacher. All right, so Jordan, you draw the teacher straw. The other guy gets put into a room that's right next to yours, and you watch this guy get strapped up to this little shocker electrical machine. They call it a shock generator. And it's kind of strapped to his arm. And uh, the guy says, well, I have a heart condition. Uh, uh, the veterans hospital told me i uh, got to be careful with my heart. And the guy in the lab coat says, sir, though the shocks may be painful, they're not dangerous. So then they say, hey, Jordan, would you like to see what the shock feels like? And they zap your arm. And it's like, holy crap, that hurts. They say, what, what voltage do you think that was? And you go, 300. And the guy in the lab coat goes, that, sir, that was 50. So it, it's kind of a surprising thing. They walk you to the other room, and you're sitting there at this table in front of this giant machine, and it's got 20 or so switches on it. And each switch is an increase in voltage from left to right. So it starts out at zero and goes all the way up to like 450. And after 450, it says danger. And after that, it says XXX, danger, severe shock. So that's the final switch. So they say, well, you're going to read these questions to the guy in the other room through a microphone. And when he gets them wrong, you're going to shock him. And every time he gets it wrong, you're going to increase the voltage to the next switch. Pretty straightforward. So he reads off these questions. Guy in the other room is getting, of course, getting all this stuff wrong. He's getting shocked more and more and more. But in reality, the guy getting shocked in the other room is just an actor. You are the only participant in the experiment. So we have a stranger shocking someone, or so he thinks, in another room who he can hear through the wall. He's screaming. He's saying, let me out of here. I don't want to do this anymore. I have a, I have a heart condition. And people continue to shock. 250, 300, 350. And at around 350, the guy in the other room stops making all sound and stops answering questions completely. They could be completely dead. And the, of course, the person who's participating in the experiment sitting there at this shock machine and they get a little bit apprehensive. They turn around to this guy in the lab coat and they say, hey, he's not responding anymore. He might be dead in there. And the guy in the lab coat says, it's, it's very important that you continue any non-answer must be treated as an incorrect answer. Please continue. So they keep shocking this guy who's no longer making any sound whatsoever, all the way up to the XXX danger severe shock. Now, all of us, if I was to ask, if you were to poll every single one of your listeners to take a poll, 100% would say, I would never shock a human being to death. True. So when these psychiatrists, who are way smarter than we are in psychology, this group of psychiatrists sat down and met with each other to determine what they thought the outcomes were going to be, the developing the hypothesis part of the experiment. They predicted that 0.1% of participants would go all the way to shock somebody to the final voltage. In reality, 65% did it. And their experiment has been replicated 
outside of universities, with men, with women, with children, and all around the world, and it replicates almost identical results every time. And the only time that the results are a little bit lower is when the people that volunteered know what the experiment is, and they willingly like, oh, I'm going to go in there and show everybody how awesome I am. So it's, I don't think it says something bad about humanity. I think it's sending a message about how we need to be more aware of how fragile our thoughts can be. That if you can be talked into killing a stranger in less than an hour by just some dude you just met, just the fact that he's wearing a lab coat makes you commit a murder. So what's really important is that this guy in the lab coat didn't use persuasion. He didn't have some Robert Cialdini persuasion trick. Uh, There was no, uh, other than authority, there was no hypnosis. There's no covert hypnosis. There's no covert influence techniques. Uh, He wasn't trying to make physical contact and use the person's name and make eye contact and all this other influence stuff. None of that stuff was necessary once authority was present. So I was uh, hypothesizing that maybe authority is more important and more effective than influence and persuasion skills. So in that vein, authority was more effective to control or change a person's natural state of behavior than any influence method that has ever been conceived. So I looked and looked to find something that detailed a process on how to trigger that obedience in people based off authority. And I couldn't find it. So I did probably four to six years of research uh, on every experiment that's ever been done on authority. And one thing that we really found is that there are absolute triggers that trigger authority. And there are absolute behaviors of authority figures who can trigger obedience in other people. That being the confidence, discipline, leadership, gratitude, and enjoyment. And making all of that really, really sticky and contagious to other people. So once you're like, if you have fake confidence, like the alpha male confidence we see on, on stupid ass articles that are on the internet, if you have that kind of confidence, it makes other people feel small. If you have real confidence, it lifts other people up. It gives other people more confidence. So that's, that's the difference between false behavior and true behavior is that once it's at a high level, you're contagious. Your behavior becomes contagious and starts to inspire and influence other people, what, no matter what it is. Well, what does this look like? in conversation, generating this authority? Like how can we do this in our everyday conversations? There is a lot behind that question. So one of the main things that I've noticed is that there are a few environmental factors that play a key role. There's five of them. Uh, I'll, I'll give you the first one, and this is vitally important. The first environmental factor is the environment itself, the where you are. Because if you think back to the last time you went out to a party, the last time you went out to something that you had to dress up for and you left a pile of dishes in the sink. You had a three foot pile of laundry at the foot of your bed. You had six overdue bill notices spread out on your kitchen table. You left something undone. 
there's a part of our brain dedicated to remembering and reminding us that we are neglecting something. And what happens is when we go out and we try to act confident or try to appear confident to other people, there's a part of our brain that makes us behave incongruently because we don't have our shit together, so to speak. So if, if there's something going on in your life inside of one of those five zones, environment being the most important, it will show in your nonverbal communication. Not in a way where like, oh, I'm not talking to a body language expert, so they're not going to notice. It's going to show because your unconscious communication is extremely honest. And other people's unconscious listening device is very open. So it hears everything. So that's, that's what happens when you have a conversation where somebody will look super confident and they'll be in this conversation, but you'll feel like something is off. Something isn't right. So we get a weird feeling, not because we're, we're consciously reading something in their body, but because they're sending those signals and our unconscious is picking it up. So if your environment's not together, if the rest of your life is not together, that stuff will leak out in your behavior 100% of the time. And that is one of the building blocks. I mean, we have a whole authority system but that just getting some things in order will drastically change your nonverbal communication. And I'm a big fan of changing things as a byproduct of changing the big thing. Like for instance, the pickup artist community is all about these techniques and tactics and how to talk, how to speak, hold your body up straight. This is how to make eye contact. This is how long to hold somebody's hand, all of these techniques, but there are ways to pretend if you took every single technique that they've ever put together, it's all ways to pretend like you have your, your life together. That's all it is. It's faking. And I would much rather invest in myself and get to the point where that attraction or whatever you want at the end is a byproduct of having been fully invested in myself and really growth-minded and centered around my own development. What was the analogy that you used that I heard you use somewhere to describe the pickup artist community and faking it. Uh, I think the analogy you're talking about is the grouper fish. Oh yeah. yeah. So a grouper fish, I mean, they're almost worldwide fish. They're, they get forgive from a few feet long to like 600 pounds. I think they're giant fish and I'm not a, a fish expert, but I know they get really freaking huge. So, these grouper fish feed off of smaller fish and these grouper fish will swim down by a rock and a fish comes by anywhere near their mouth. It's getting eaten because the grouper is pretty strong and pretty quick. But in some areas of the world, uh, most of it, there's a little small fish. It's about four inches long. It's called a cleaner wasp and a cleaner wasp is uh, just this little fish and he goes up to the grouper and about three to four feet away from this grouper fish and he does a dance. So he does some kind of uh, dance in the water that tells this grouper to open his mouth. And they have this symbiotic relationship because the grouper opens his mouth. This cleaner fish swims over to the grouper fish and starts cleaning his teeth, 
cleans all the meat out of his teeth, cleans the inside of his mouth, even gets like bacterial growth off the fish's uh, tonsils and just that whole back area of their mouth. So the grouper says, I'll open my mouth and let you eat whatever's inside. And I promise not to eat you. And the small fish is agreeing, like, I will clean everything and I will be on my way. So they have a really symbiotic relationship there. And it's Im impressive that that's the autopilot, this, this behavior of the grouper fish, that he sees this dance and automatically becomes calm and opens his mouth up all the way so this fish can swim inside of it and do whatever he wants. There's another fish called a saber-toothed bloody fish. And this thing is similar in size to the cleaner wasp fish. So this thing swims up to the grouper fish. The grouper's sitting there hanging out with his buddies or hanging out by a, a rock. This uh, saber-toothed bloody fish swims over there, and he sees this cleaner fish one day. He sees this cleaner fish doing this dance, and he's watching, and he sees this grouper open his mouth up and this cleaner fish goes in there and does whatever he wants to and swims out. So this saber-toothed bloody fish says, wow, that's, that's a pretty cool tactic. I'm going to copy that tactic. So he goes over to the grouper fish and does this dance. And this is happening worldwide. And he does the dance and replicates this dance. And the grouper fish isn't the most intelligent creature in the world. He sees the dance and just opens his mouth. The saber-toothed bloody fish swims down inside this grouper's mouth and eats the inside of his head from the inside out. He eats his gills, rips everything apart. So this fish is ruined. He's still alive, but he has no feeling in his mouth, so he doesn't know that his body's really getting destroyed. So this saber-toothed bloody fish swims out, and the grouper eventually dies. So... That's a great analogy for that, that we just trick something into opening its mouth. And it, it's pretty similar. It really is. It's totally. It's very similar to the pickup community and faking that authority. Chase, now moving on, what is the bystander effect? The bystander effect is something there is a ton of research on. And the bystander effect just says that the more people are near you, if you need help, the less likely you are to get help. So in an extreme circumstance, um, if you get stabbed on the street, on a busy street, let's say like New York City, it takes an average of like 15 minutes for someone to help you. They'll step over your body. They'll walk around you. Even if you're asking for help, you're begging for help. So... This happens because we, we form these social, unconscious social bonds with other people. And if no one else is helping, why would I deviate from the group? So if there's less people, you're more likely to get help because someone, there's not a group behavior that someone has to conform to. If you think back, like, let's go 20,000 years ago, when we had these little nomadic tribes of human beings that averaged around 50 people. If you deviated from the social behavior of your group, that means, number one, you're not getting laid. Number two, you're not getting physical protection because the group won't come together to protect someone that deviates. And number three, you don't produce offspring. So we are specifically programmed to be very attentive of group and social behavior and to conform. Even if it's just one person that's hurt, 
we would rather our brains choose to help the group and conform to the group. Now, if the person that's hurt or if the person that is uh, wounded on a street somewhere, let's say, is wearing a business suit, and uh, Dr. Philip Zimbardo uh, had a great experiment about this on YouTube, and I'm sure you can throw it in the show notes. It's fantastic to watch. If the person who's injured is wearing like a business suit, they'll get help within five or six seconds right away. Wow. But why is that? That is the power of authority. Yeah. Okay. I was just going to say, yeah. So uh, alongside that, that's that just that one part of this, there was a study called the crosswalk study where this guy in a blue jeans and t-shirt would break a crosswalk in New York. Uh, go against the signal. There's no cars coming, but it says don't walk. And a guy in blue jeans and t-shirt just kind of walks across anyway. A couple of people might follow after him. But a guy wearing a suit, the same guy wearing, putting on a tie and a suit and then breaking the crosswalk increases the likelihood of people to follow him by like 80%. Just the clothing. So if you really break that experiment down, clothing saved that man's life laying down on the street who's injured and clothing causes 80% more people to break the law just because you have a suit on. So this is profound. This is just one little tiny thing. The guy's posture wasn't good. He wasn't talking to anybody. There was no influence going on. He was just wearing a suit, got help in six seconds, crossed the street. People will follow. So if people are willing to break the law, which is granted it's not a huge law, but if people are willing to follow that behavior or deviate from social norms to help that person in the suit, that shows that we're always scanning our environment for authority figures and our brains are hardwired for obedience. So all they're doing is that man is in a suit. He has the potential to be an authority figure or he has the potential to be someone who might be in charge of me or might lead me someday. I'm going to deviate from this, this large crowd to help this guy out because this doesn't look right. An authority figure should not be hurt. So we all have this instinct to also protect the authority figures. No one really, the, the, the guy in the lab coat wasn't the guy shocking the guy in the other room. So what happens is like when we really get, if once we develop authority in a conversation, we use the, like the, the mental trip wires that, that I teach in my seminars, you use those trip wires, people undergo what we call an agentic shift. And that's a derivative of the word agent. So you become an agent for the person that is speaking to you and you no longer feel fully responsible for your own actions. And that, it doesn't have to be your boss at work. It could be just a guy in a, in a suit. And Philip Zimbardo did another fantastic piece of research where he put this guy in a train conductor's uniform, just like a a silly Halloween costume looking thing, and had him walk around with some Toys R Us walkie-talkie and tell people what to do. And he got like 90 to 100% compliance. He would say, no, no, you can't walk between me and this park bench. Uh, You have to walk around me, and then you have to go touch that apple on the ground over there before you can go about your day. And people would do the silliest shit because of this uniform, but not because they made a conscious choice. Our brain 
unconsciously responds to authority. So we consciously respond most of the time when we're in like a, let's say a car dealership and we're trying to buy a car. That's a conscious conversation. But when there's an authority figure there and our brains undergo this agentic shift, we unconsciously respond to that. I, uncon I didn't make a conscious choice to deviate from group behavior. My brain's not even thinking about that. I'm just, bam, I instantly want to help. I instantly want to obey. I instantly want to break, this, break the law here like this guy did it. I instantly feel safe. It gives me permission to do the same thing. So that is, is how powerful that stuff really is. Well, that's incredibly fascinating, Chase. Now, what is attentional shift fatigue? This is something that I've come across recently, and that's a word that I created for it because I, don't, I was unable to find uh, a description for it. Over the last 20 years, the amount of advertising and shifts of our attention from one thing to another has increased by like 900%. Some people say over 2,000%. I'm in the pretty conservative range, but it's still higher than any other time in human history. We are driving down the road. There's more billboards than ever before. There's more ads on the radio. If you remember listening to the radio, even at your age, when you were a kid, it, I bet you'd think there were probably less commercials because there were. We oh. watch TV shows. There, there are more commercials than there ever were. Huh. We scrolling on Facebook. We see ads all the time. We watch YouTube. Oh, you can't watch this YouTube until there's a, a five second ad. We don't even watch the ad. Never. We just wait to hit the skip button. So a lot of us are in this constantly shifting attention. And 20 years ago, having someone immediately shift their attention would be really important to get their focus right away. But nowadays, that those attentional shifts back and forth and back and forth have caused more people to be in a trance than ever before. You walk around an airport and take a look. It is insane how many people are completely unaware of their surroundings because they're so focused on an email or their Twitter feed or whatever's on their phone. So we have been fatigued by shifting our attention back and forth so much so that a lot of people, there's uh, still folks out there teaching uh, this stuff called like covert hypnosis and all this other stuff. But what's already there is the trance. The people that you're speaking to, especially if they're in a, in a role, they're playing a role like a Starbucks employee or a waitress or someone driving their car or someone standing there talking to someone taking a survey. Everyone's playing a role. And when you're playing a role, you're in what's called autopilot which is like your brain says, all right, this is kind of complicated. I'm going to memorize a whole bunch of crap so that you don't have to pay attention to it the next time you do it. So that's all it is. Your brain is running a script. So like if you go, if any of your listeners are video gamers, if you go to a, a Starbucks, those employees are NPCs. They are non-playable characters. Like they're running scripts. That's it. They're running right. a script over and over and over. They are already in trance. The trick is to break them out. Yeah, how do you do that? That was actually my next question. Yeah, to, breaking someone out of trance is more effective than putting them in most of the time. However, if you're doing something that's really quick, something I was just talking about at our seminar in London, 
if you're just like trying to talk your way into getting a free coffee, you want to maintain that trance because you only have a few seconds. So you want to maintain that autopilot. So, you know, I know that some idiot walks up there all the time to this register at Starbucks and asks her about the weather or makes some comment about how cold it is or fill in the blank of just normal random crap that people talk about. Just saying that will push that Starbucks employee deeper into the autopilot. So, and I don't mean to just target that <laughs> hammer on Starbucks. I mean, anyone, any one of us. So just for really quick uh, scenarios, you want to maintain uh, at least somewhat, you want to maintain that autopilot. But for anything that's more than five minutes, you want to break it. And breaking the autopilot happens anytime we experience something different. For instance, if you're in the middle of school and your teacher is going through a PowerPoint at a university and all of a sudden a picture of a girl's butt is filling the entire screen, two seconds ago you were in autopilot. I'm in a student mode. I have a pen in my hand. I'm just taking notes. I'm listening to the teacher. So this is an automatic memorized behavior and it's braked. It breaks because something deviates from normal occurrences. Does that make sense? Definitely. So anytime there's a deviation of normal, the autopilot will break. And the first thing you have to do, as soon as you saw like the girl butt pick on, at, a, at a college thing or someone on the street looks different than everyone else, like you're walking down uh, through an airport and there's someone dressed like Big Bird, it's going to break the autopilot. So the first thing that happens as soon as our autopilot is broken is that our attention goes to max. Attention goes to max, which means focus automatically goes to max. And the reason that this is programmed in every human being is that, let's go back 50,000 years or, or more. If you're walking through the woods one day and there's a tiger there waiting to eat you, he might make a sound before he jumps through the bushes. So the people who are walking through the, the woods, it's quiet. We're walking through, uh, we've walked through these woods a hundred times, hunting for food to bring back to our families. And we're walking through these woods and all of a sudden, one day we hear a stick snap. The people who didn't pay attention to that stick snapping don't have offspring because they are dead. Uh. So when something is different in our environment, the people who did pay attention to that and focus, they had attention first, focus second, immediate focus to determine whether this thing is of value to me or it is a threat to me. The people who paid attention to that lived through, well, most likely, or hopefully lived through that scenario. So we are hardwired to notice subtle changes and especially deviations from something that we've kind of memorized to be a certain way. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Autopilot has been one of the fast, most fascinating concepts, or at least one of the concepts that I always have at the forefront of my mind. Now you, I am, why did you say to get a free coffee, you want to maintain the barista's autopilot? Cause whenever I'm, you know, getting groceries or, you know, with the barista, I always, 
I make it a personal challenge to break their autopilot because yeah. I want this interaction to be different. Yeah. I, I mean, cause that's just me. I don't know. I just want to, I have no interest in being the, in the whole, you know, how are you? I'm good. Yeah. I, like I want it to be different. And so I make it a challenge to break that autopilot. Why did you say to maintain it? Yeah. So once you're in the autopilot, it's, it's your brain is running a script. And if you throw something into that script, the brain accepts it as true without any kind of critical decision-making skills going into it. So for instance, you're running an autopilot and then somebody comes up to you and says, Oh, Hey, how you doing? Uh, man, this rain doesn't seem like it's going to stop. Does it? And then you don't give a crap about that comment because that's something everyone says. So I'm just pushing you a little bit further into the autopilot. And then uh, over the course of that conversation, if I use uh, like some of the confusion techniques that I teach and I use a confusion technique followed by some quick physical touch, which is slightly less than common because most people don't make physical contact, especially with the card reader on your side of the, of the register. Now you are doing all the card work. We're not handing stuff to anybody anymore. So physical contact is less likely. So we're doing a tiny thing to focus a little bit of attention towards the end and then saying, thank you. Thanks so much, which is going right back into the autopilot, which she hears every single time that someone is there. I said she, but it could be anybody. And that thank you. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Have a great day. I'm saying all of the words that they hear every time they have a, uh, a coffee sale and that sends them right back into the autopilot at the end of that. Mm. Would you use embedded commands in this scenario as well? No. no. Uh, I mean, there's a command that follows the confusion statement. Let's, I mean, and these are standard. They're all in the book. The embedded commands typically are something that take a while to build up. And I've never found that an embedded command is really powerful using it only one time. Mm. And one of the reasons that you, I wouldn't do it in this scenario or any scenario where I've only got a few minutes is that, you know, there's people behind me probably waiting. This person wants to get on with their day or finish making somebody's caramel macchiato. And you, we have a limited attention span, especially when you're talking to a stranger and using these embedded commands, you need to develop some kind of interest and curiosity. Mm -hmm. To fill the knowledge gap here, could you, and this is, this is something I wanted to get into as well. An example of a, an embedded command, what it is, and when would you use it? What would be the ideal scenario to use an embedded command? There's a million scenarios. But an embedded command is something that was first born out of neuro-linguistic programming, which was founded by Richard Bandler and John Grinder in the 70s. And neuro-linguistic programming is based off of the work of Virginia Satir and Milton Erickson for the most part. So if anybody's doing research, those are all the people that kind of built this, this system. And an embedded command specifically is designed to bypass the conscious mind and you're giving someone a command to do something without them knowing that there's a command in the sentence. For instance, you want someone to get completely focused. Let's say get completely focused is the command. And I say something completely random like, Jordan, I remember uh, reading through your book the other day. It's amazing how easy it is to get completely focused. 
when you're really absorbed in something that's really interesting. So the only way to make that an embedded command is a little pause before it, a little pause after it, and a slight tonality shift as you say those three words. And something else I might do is when, I, when I'm saying focused, I'll hold my hands up as if you and I are looking at each other. So, or I'll point at myself when, and when I say the word interesting after that, after mm. I'm talking about focus. Mm. What was the term that you use when you're building up, when people are building up that image of you in their head and you, you gesture to yourself as you say the word awesome or interesting, what is that yeah. term? In the book, it's referred to as an OP or operator point. So pointing towards yourself. Tactically, how can we go about using this in everyday life and what is the benefit of it? We use gestures all the time. So the, the actual term that you might've been looking for for this is gestural referencing. Yes. And we gesture with our hands randomly all the time. We're throwing them all around. And instead of doing it randomly, I wanted to see uh, like when it's done deliberately, does it have an effect? And I've seen people, I think going back to the 1920s that started researching this stuff and I can send you the research, but please, in a conversation, if I want you to associate a word with me, like interesting or fascinating or wonderful or great friend, I could point towards myself just very casually to where I don't look like a, a weirdo in a conversation. And if I want to associate something with you or I want you to associate something with yourself, like the word focused, interested, curious, intrigued, can't wait to hear more, I'll point towards you. So I'll just gesture one hand, two hands. It doesn't matter as long as it looks casual. And if I'm talking about something that's between the both of us, like great connection or good vibes or authenticity, words like that, that I want to associate with the conversation, I'll gesture back and forth between you and I. Mm -hmm. That's a tactic that I have been thinking about. And not just thinking about, but using a lot in my everyday conversations over the past month. I think it's one of, I feel like it's one of the easier ones to start doing right now. It is. Yeah, definitely. So you talk a lot about identifying the needs. You can, you claim that you can identify someone's needs with, after the first couple words out of their mouth, after the first couple of sentences that come out of their mouth, you can identify what their needs are. Why is this important and how can you do that? Uh, great question. Uh, but uh, you would never really be able to identify anyone's needs within a few words, but most of the time within a few sentences. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you read a psychology textbook, any of them in the world, they are all speaking in generalities. Nothing is 100% for every human being. Even the DSM, which is like the Bible of psychology and diagnosing mental illness, is, is, is a general. They're all kind of general guidelines. So it's, that's the difference between psychology and physics, is that everything's organic, uh, movable, and pretty fluid. But in a conversation, we have there's six basic human needs, not as an academic study, but the six basic needs that are in my book are the six uh, biggest levers that you can use to control or change a person's behavior. 
And identifying those happens when you start a conversation, like they're all in the book and I think they're, they're on my website. But it happens during a conversation when someone is talking about themselves. If, you, if you're open, you're talking about yourself, you talk about something that you enjoy, you will identify some of your core social needs, of like being significant or being approved or being appreciated or looking intelligent to other people. Those are pretty easy. And in the book, there's a breakdown. So if you can spot someone's need, there's a breakdown of that, that person's need. So you can look for someone that needs to be seen as intelligent. There's a list of their top five biggest fears. So if you, within 45 seconds of a conversation, you can literally know someone's fears. And I would never hope, I would hope that no one would ever do this to feel superior to anybody because we all have them. Because a lot of people read this book and learn how to see this crazy stuff in human beings, and they think, oh, this book is about those people out there. No, no, it's about you too. It's like we are all human beings. We all have these needs. We all have the fears. And what's really fundamental about this is that seeing someone's fears, imagine if you're a therapist and you know the biggest fears that your client is unwilling to tell you, how much faster would that allow you to get to a behavioral outcome? Much faster. A, yeah, a sales situation. And you know the fears of your customer. How much faster mm-hmm. could you close the deal? Yeah, if you could use scare, leverage scarcity and, and future regret to your advantage. 100%, yeah. So the needs was the biggest breakthrough in reading people that we did. I teach a part of our courses is called Six Minute Discovery where I have people and show them in a conversation within six minutes, you can fill out an entire piece of paper with information about a person in six minutes that not even their friends and family know about six minutes. So in this six minute discovery process has gotten really famous because uh, legal teams have started using it. uh, Interrogation units have started using this and it was made to just dig out the generalities about most people, and then when you're in the conversation, you know how to dig out the needs, the fears, the insecurities, and you know all kinds of other stuff. There's a lot of stuff that people reveal that are not showing you like their Myers-Briggs personality type, which has been debunked, but, but showing you like the, the genuine, like my social mask is completely removed. This is, this is what I look like. And What's really cool about learning to do this stuff and wanting to pull someone's social mask off is that when you do it for the first time, you see that person get extremely scared that they're, it's like they're naked. They're mentally naked there. And they're, they're scared for a moment and then they realize they're not being judged and you still like them. You're still interested in them. There's still a genuine conversation going on what happens is they light up because they haven't taken that mask off in maybe 10, 15 years for some people, not even in front of their spouse. So what happens is they take the mask off with someone they just met and they're not judged. So even if I never see them again, I know uh, that that person is going to be more comfortable being fully real and authentic in their next conversation, which is so fantastic just to think about. It sure is. It's a very powerful tool. Another powerful tool, though, and one that 
uh, there's just so many, so many that I'm intrigued by, so many that I've been putting into practice and that I love. Double binds, double binding questions. What are they? Why are they important? And what's a scenario that you could use these double binds? Let's piggyback on what we were just talking about of removing social masks. Yeah. And we'll use that scenario. But a double bind is, is just asking someone, there are some, if you look them up online, there are some really silly ways to ask those questions. But it's when you ask your kids, do you want to brush your teeth now or in five minutes? Do you want to take a bath before or after you brush your teeth? So you're getting them to agree to two things at once, or you're getting them to agree to two things or one thing just by answering the question. But in a more elegant way, uh, consider if you ask someone the question, how did you get this completely open? Is this something you were, you were as a kid, or did you learn to be this authentic and open as you grew up? Ah, uh, it's sort of like skill solicitation in a way, if you know yeah. what I mean by that. Yeah. Yeah, and just for them to answer that question, they've got to start behaving more open. You're, changing, you're modifying their behavior by asking a question. And it works so well. It's, it's stupid to, to think that you know, a technique that's small enough to fit on a bumper sticker could, could change someone's behavior, but it really does work. It sure does. I agree with it. And I've actually, I've actually used it uh, just a couple of times now. And when I ask guests to, to uh, come on the podcast, I'll have to show you a little bit later and, and see if you, I get the approval, but I mean, it's been working for me. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd love to see it. Yeah. I, it's, it's probably very primitive, but nonetheless, it's, it's, it's a form of a double bind for sure. <laughs> Brilliant. So persuasion, is this something in your field of expertise? What are, does human behavior, learning human behavior make you better at persuasion? Yes. And so what are the keys to persuasion? Robert Cialdini has got that area handled. Uh, so I will, I will never keep, no, claim to know the keys of persuasion. But I would say that learning how to read people automatically makes you more persuasive. Learning persuasion and influence techniques makes you more persuasive. And then using that with, with authority, which is in the ellipsis manual, and which we dive into for a day and a half in my seminars, teaching you how to trigger those obedience tripwires in people. We call this manufacturing compliance. And authority makes all of that exponentially more powerful. Definitely. Now, this next concept is something that I've been really curious about as well, and that is deliberate social errors. In what social scenario would you use deliberate social errors? I've been trying to figure that one out. I don't know quite when to deliberately mess up uh, a lot of times if someone is extremely self-conscious that makes them that makes you look more human it makes them more comfortable you come back to the conversation and start it again they're twice as comfortable so in an interrogation sense somebody who has like a, a strong need to be in charge this alpha male type or fake alpha male type of personality a, a good interrogator might go into the room with a piece of his shirt tail untucked, a coffee stain on his shirt, or a, a forget his pen or forget his notepad, have one of the police officers yell at him like he's in trouble as he's going into the room or trip as he's walking in 
or deliberately look insecure or nervous or mispronounce words. So making this other person feel that they're talking to someone that they can easily take charge of increases their comfort level to a point that they're easier to manipulate. Mm -hmm. What is the biggest misconception surrounding you and your work? I get a lot of weird emails about people who are, I've, I've gotten an email from someone who said that I'm missing memories from, from two years, like I'm missing two years of my life and I need help like recovering this because I was involved in some kind of, uh, oh man, I, I just don't understand. I, I don't know anything about that stuff. And then some people uh, assume that a lot of my techniques are just some, some kind of brainwashing, mind control stuff. And if you really think about it, the mind control, there's no real definition of that. So if we, let's call mind control manipulation. And we can kind of call manipulation influence. And if, if there is a therapist out there that doesn't manipulate their clients, they're charging them money for nothing. We pay for manipulation when we go to a therapist. I need to be convinced not to feel depressed anymore. I need to be convinced not to eat six pounds of fried chicken every day. I need to be convinced to do something. I need to be persuaded, influenced, manipulated into not doing this behavior anymore. So, I mean, it gets a bad rap, but I think, uh, you know what, my, my entire company is based off of the single principle that we rise by lifting others. And I think the inverse of that is 100% true. Mm. Mm -hmm. So the inverse would be we, by degrading we, others, we, we degrade ourselves. We yeah. Sure. Okay. I agree with that statement. Now, do you think it's possible that we're thinking too much about this? I mean, the book is incredibly complex, but a lot of questions that people have been bringing up to me is, is it possible that we're overthinking all of this? Yeah, absolutely. It's possible. If you look at a book on heart surgery, it's usually a 10 volume book. Then each volume is the size of a phone book, a giant, like two inches wide on the spine. Um, overthinking heart surgery is why we save a million more lives per year. Overthinking antibiotics is why we're saving another 10 billion lives over the last 500 years or hundred years, however long it is. Overthinking psychology is how someone who is obsessed with it and wrote a giant book about it. It's how we have better therapeutic techniques, cognitive behavior therapy and an emotional freedom technique and all this other stuff today. So I hope to God that I'm overthinking it so other people don't have to. Great answer, my friend. That is awesome. That's not something I would have expected to hear. Do you ever now get so caught up in reading nonverbal cues that you just miss what the person is saying? Yeah. I, I mean, I did. I have students that get into that all the time. Mm, definitely. One of the ways to stop that is to start looking at behavior, spend a long time just seeing behavior and not trying to make any meaning out of it whatsoever. Just watch movement of the body, movement of the face, making no meaning whatsoever so you can stay present in the conversation. And as the movements start to become easier to notice, they'll move back into the unconscious part of the mind. The reason you can't focus on the conversation is because it's not an unconscious skill yet. So paying attention to behavior is taking up a lot of your CPU RAM, 
so to speak. Right. So once you mem- you get used to reading behavior, you push it back into the unconscious. And then I would say step two here is the second phase of reading body language and getting good at it is deciding is what I'm seeing either open, closed, aggressive, or uncertainty. That's it. Just try to profile that into the, one of those four categories and then spend a few months, a few weeks, depends on how fast you learn, learning that stuff and then start learning about the meanings. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you ever find yourself giving off bad body language? Are you perfect, Chase? All the time. All mm-hmm. the time. Okay. Okay. So, so I'll be, uh, I mean, when I first started learning body language, I monitored myself a lot and it was uh, exhausting. And finally, I just gave up and then I uh, just became myself. And every once in a while, I get one guy at a seminar who will come up during a break or something like, Chase, uh, I noticed you were uh, blinking a lot. And that means that you might be uh, a little bit uh, stressed. And I was like, you know what? Congratulations, bro. I'm a human. You figured it out. Figured it out. Cracked the case. Yeah. And a lot of times when people find themselves doing bad, bad body language, they'll want to correct it instantly, but just, just own it. You're, you're as human as the people that you're seeing all these vulnerabilities in. We, we should never feel superior. And a lot of times, one of the biggest, this is one of the things I only teach in the seminars I've never said on a podcast before, is that the biggest barrier that you will ever face to full self-development is obsession over status. Wow. Mm-hmm. Why is that? <laughs> I like the way you asked that. <laughs> Anytime that you're worried about where you stand in a pecking order, one, you're not present. Two, you're not on top. Guaranteed. Ah, true. It's a good point. It's a very yep. good point. Chase, what do you make of eye movements? I think about this and I've I've heard stuff, but I don't know that I've seen concrete evidence and research that supports it. And I know I'm botching it, but it says, you know, when you look upward and to the left, you're accessing this part of your brain. When you're looking upward and to the right, you're accessing this part of the brain and you might be fabricating the story. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you make of all that? So just to, just to give credit to the person that invented it, it was uh, Richard Bandler and John Grinder, the founders uh, of NLP. NLP. Yeah. And they called this technique, eye accessing cues, C U E S. And the eye accessing cues I have not done any research on whether or not they're effective, but a lot of people have. And there's an overwhelming number of people way smarter than me who say that uh, the eye accessing cues are completely unreliable. Mm. But I'm a big fan of Richard Bandler, John Grinder. Their work is fantastic. And I think this is something that they they may not have had time or or grant money to, to get a whole bunch of academic research involved in. But I think some people still use it and it may be effective for them. It might be, it might be helpful for them just to look. Mm -hmm. Now, Chase, there's so much that we've gone over today. There are so many different behavior engineering tools. And my fear though, is that people will be overwhelmed and not really know where to start. Where would you suggest people start 
and, and what tools they can start using right now? What would you ask? What would you suggest? Yeah. So if, if, if you are interested in looking at human behavior and, and interpreting it well, I would suggest getting first getting the book by Barbara and Alan Pease before you get mine. Oh, uh, Barbara and Alan Pease wrote a book called the definitive guide to body language. I think the cover is still purple and it's on Amazon. Um, mine is a little more advanced for when you're ready to move to a more advanced level. Um, that will help walk you through it. And I would say stick to those key things to observe a little bit at a time and just keep a note card in your pocket of what you're going to look for that day. Today, I'm only going to be watching blink rate. Today, I'm only going to be watching finger and hand movements and breathing or, you know, just pick a few things at a time, a little bit at a time. And if you really want to get serious with it, I have a one year long training planner with homework that's specifically assigned for every day of the year of what you need to look at, what technique you need to practice uh, to get really good at this by the end of the year. Okay. Yeah, we'll put the book in the show notes. Of course, your book and then the book you recommend it and then the one-year training planner will be in the show notes as well. And is that something I picked up on? That if we were to create a textbook on, we'll use the blanket term communication. And I would say how to win friends and influence people would be like the introduction. And I'm, I'm pretending this is a math course and it gets exponentially harder and harder and more complex as you go. Yeah. So that's how to win friends and influence people. Somewhere along the way, say chapter three is Captivate by Vanessa Van Edwards, and then maybe the book you recommend it. And then like chapter 10, the last, the last chapter, the most in detail, complex, and powerful tool is the Ellipsis Manual. Well, thank you. And you know, How to Win Friends and Influence People, I think is the third best-selling book of all of human history next to the Holy Bible and one other one that I can't remember. Maybe Think and Grow Rich is the other one. Maybe. I mean, that is a seminal work. Yeah, I always recommend it to everyone. I think it should be required reading in either high schools or colleges. It it needs to be read by everybody if they hope to communicate effectively, be talented communicators in this world. Yeah, and just be just a just a regular old good person yeah. interested in other people. Yeah. If you hope to win friends and influence people and be a good person, exactly yeah. to your point. So what should people avoid? What is, what is on the not to do list in terms of getting started here? Don't do what I did. So in the beginning I would, I was addicted to information and not skill development. So I would collect books and eBooks and my friends would send me stuff off of torrent sites and uh, I, would, I would go buy DVDs and seminar DVDs. I would go to seminar after seminar after seminar and I would attend all of the military trainings that I possibly could around the country at whatever base. And I was addicted to getting more information instead of building more skill. And that is poison. And it'll get you, man. For me, at least, it was addicting to get the information. Like, wow, now I have this uh, six-inch thick book on interrogation. Now I can rest peacefully. But wait, I can't do interrogation. I can't do anything with it until I read it and then implement it. And then reading the books isn't enough either. 
You can't read a book and then go win friends and influence people. Yeah. You've got to start implementing this stuff piecemeal every couple of days in your life. And that's where this little card that, that I still use today, and I know we're on audio, but I'm holding it up for, for Jordan to see. I have them right here on my desk. And they are so effective in tracking your habits and just thinking of the things that I need to get done today. And there is a, gosh, I wish I could remember his name. That is the millionaire planning system. Oh, but that's, that's where I got the idea from. How millionaires schedule their day is the name of the YouTube video. Mm-hmm. But it's all, and I put it on a note card. I fill this note card out every morning. There's a, a close of the day, like what could I have done better today? All those questions on the backside. And then I toss it in the garbage. Oh, wow. Well, that's interesting. And what you say about, you know, don't just be a collector of information. You can be a collector of information, but don't just be a collector of information. <laughs> right, people always right. say, my biggest, one of my biggest pet peeves is when people say knowledge is power. It's really not. Yeah. <laughs> knowledge is not power. Action is power. Yeah. If knowledge action. was power, you could be able to buy a book on how to ride a motorcycle and then go jump on one and do it. Yeah. That's not the case. Yeah. I, I don't know if you're familiar with Derek Sivers and his work, but he's really fascinating. And he, one of the quotes that he has is if more information were the answer, we'd all be billionaires with six packs. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We've got all the information we need, man. Yeah, exactly. Yep. We do. So one of the big things that you said and the, what your company is founded on, we rise by lifting others. Where did that come about? I think my mentor shared this with, with me. I think it was a quote from Oscar Wilde, but I had some really hard trouble trying to figure out who said it. So this came about uh, by me starting to teach a few people this stuff. And of all people, my mom uh, freaked out that I was going to be teaching this to the public. She thought there was going to be some massive outbreak of rapists who are going to erase people's memories. And so, you know, I was trying to just hammer that home that if you come to one of my seminars and you look like a shady character, I will refund you and kick you out. I'll even pay for your travel. Wow. So I have no problem doing that, man. And I think that I am lifting others up by kicking somebody like that out of a seminar, but I wanted to hammer that home that, that that's my core belief. And that's how I want people to use the information. But in the end, if the, the people who make the rifles that keep us safe in Iraq are the same people who make a rifle that's used to do bad stuff. So it's, uh, it's got to be used responsibly, but I know some, some, there's going to be some dick that's going to use it the wrong way. Uh, but that's just, I think that's just par for the course, man. And mm-hmm. the, the greatest thing I could do is to try to hammer that down and say that we rise by lifting others at every chance that I possibly can. Definitely. I love it. And you practice what you preach too. I have to acknowledge you for that because the people that you have connected me to and the things that you've done for me without asking for anything in return, I even asked you, I said, what can I do for you? And, (laughs) and that's when you said, we rise by lifting others. I'm a firm believer in that. The universe has my back. You said something to the effect of that. Yeah. And it's, it was really heartwarming, man. I, I mean, you've made a profound impact on my life, not just, yeah, from the book, but from everything else that you've done for me as well. The book has 
changed my life in a whole nother area. It is incredible. Like my life will never be the same. And so I have to acknowledge you for that and for creating something that doesn't exist. You know, something, like I said, that has changed my life forever and for practicing what you preach. And I'm just incredibly thankful for you. And this book right here, the ellipsis manual is going up on my favorite shelf. And like, I literally just finished reading it today. I've been reading it for the past month. I'm a slow reader. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) That's quick. That's quick to read, man. That's a, it's thick. It's thick. Uh, It's yeah. It's like, not though. I mean, the it's just the information's thick. It's like trying to read a geometry textbook. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's a lot no, of stuff. Well, there. to to be fair, it was very. I wouldn't call it a geometry textbook. I wouldn't degrade it like that. It was incredibly interesting, especially for me. You know, where communication and behavioral science has been my passion project, my sort of hobby for the past year that I've been reading up on. So. I really enjoyed it. And it was something that I couldn't keep my mind off of even all throughout the day. Like I told you, you know, I, I may have prepared 30 hours for this, but that doesn't even count the, the amount of hours that I was just thinking about this, man. Yeah. Thank you so much. No, no, Chase. Thank you. So ellipsis manual, the ellipsis manual, you can get it on Amazon. It's a number one bestseller. I will have that linked in the description in the show notes as well as your website, ellipsisbehavior.com, all sorts of resources there. And I will have that as well linked in the show notes and the description of this episode. So Chase, I want you to leave us all with an experiment that we can do today. I'm going out with a friend later and I would love to, I'm going to be going out to eat. I would love to oh, brilliant. have Aren't an experiment. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this is called the eyebrow flash. (laughs) And when you flash your eyebrows upwards, it's the opposite of how a primate, uh, which are humans, shows anger on our face. So we raise our eyebrows to show that we're friendly or non-threatening. And what's funny is if you go out today And do an eyebrow flash, just like as you say hello to someone or good morning, you just raise your eyebrows up uh, like you're really happy. There are about nine out of 10 people will return the eyebrow flash without knowing that they did it in the first place. And this is kind of an unconscious behavior that's, you know, we've carried on for a million years or so. And this is another primate behavior that uh, I indicate I'm non-threatening, and then the other person indicates that they're non-threatening. It's really, it's really interesting to watch. So this is a perfect experiment you could take home right now and check it out. And especially when people return that eyebrow flash, they've made a physiological agreement to be non-threatening. So it's also a method you can use to start conversations. Yeah, and sort of act like you know them, and then they'll be like, you know, how do how do I how do I know you? And after five minutes, and then you say, "I we don't we don't know each other," and you walk away. I think I got that from Mark Bowden, right? <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Mark talks yeah. a lot about that. I love Mark Bowden's work, and uh, him and I just had dinner together in uh, Toronto, and he's been on a, a podcast called Unstructured recently. That was one of the best interviews I've heard in a very long time. And I heard uh, that one as well. Yeah, so Mark, Mark's going to be coming to one of the seminars we're going to have in Toronto, hopefully, uh, here in a few months. Awesome. 
Well, Chase, again, I thank you very much, everyone. The Ellipsis Manual, again, on Amazon. It is a must-read. I've been forcing all of my friends to buy this book. I've been sharing it and talking about it with everyone. This is a must-read. It is my favorite book. Chase, thank you very much. Thanks, Jordan. There you have it, my friends. This has been another episode of the Growth Mindset University podcast. Now, if you enjoyed this one today, I would really appreciate it if you could leave us a quick five-star rating in iTunes. All you have to do is grab your iPhone or iPad, open up the Apple Podcast app, hit the search tab, search the show, Growth Mindset University, or just search my name, Jordan Paris, tap the show, scroll all the way to the bottom, and then just hit that fifth star, and that helps us tremendously in ways that you could never even imagine. It means the absolute world to me when people do this. I would be eternally grateful if you do that. We're pushing 100 ratings right now, and it's really making a difference for this show. And of course, if you've not already subscribed to the show, just make sure you do that wherever you're listening to so that you don't miss that next episode. I know you're not going to want to miss it. And you only heard this episode today because I thought it was valuable enough to post here. So if you want to share that value with your friends, your family, go ahead and do that. Share this episode with them. Take a screenshot, send it to them. Take a screenshot, put it on your Instagram story and tag me at J underscore Paris underscore so that I know you're listening and I can get back to you and put a face to the name. Now, if you're ready to really take your life to the next level, my book is on Amazon. It is also called Growth Mindset University. It's all about how to learn anything, how to take control of your life, and how to fulfill your vision of success. And you're not just supporting me and this channel by getting this book, but you're also getting this awesome book that's going to lay out the rules and principles to design your life full of joy and fulfillment. All right, I love you all so very much. And until next time, my friends, make every day count, live to learn and grow to give. Stay tuned for a clip from our next interview. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey everybody, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to our sponsor today, Anchor. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Well, when I was trying to get this podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I get my show on Apple Podcasts and all the other places people like to listen? How do I make money from my podcast? The answer to every single one of these questions is really simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. And best of all, it is 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now, Anchor can match you with great sponsors too, so you can get paid to podcast. So if you've always wanted to start a podcast and make money doing so, then go to anchor.fm slash start to join me and the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. And I can't wait to hear your podcast. And now back to the show. I'm always having to work really hard. Every month, we need to come out with a winning design or else 
sales will drop significantly. I'm just always working and I listen to courses and YouTube videos and podcasts all the time trying to learn more stuff.